0: Luke chapter 5. Open your Bibles. Luke chapter 5. As you do that, I want you to think about this. If we are going to live out the Christian life, if we're going to live the life that that Christ saved us for and that, that he intends for us to experience then we are going to, to have to rightly understand some, some core concepts, some central truths. Otherwise, if we get these things wrong, what's going to happen is that we are going to be experiencing just an unending string of frustration and failure, and I think, worst of all, fruitlessness. Fruitlessness a real purposelessness to our lives. We've got to rightly understand that following Christ, it's a relationship. It's a relationship with the Savior. It's not a set of rules that we follow. We've got to understand that that what it's all about is an inner transformation that is worked by the Spirit of God within us, not an outward pressured change to our behavior. It's not about us earning God's approval of us behaving well enough that God will finally like us. It's not, it's not about us being good enough. We also have to understand this. the God's plan is is to use us to reach the lost in this world. That that he is going to use us as his transformed and freed ambassadors to reach back into that world that we have come out of. And so, in the midst of this whole dynamic of our lives changing, we can't insulate or separate ourselves from the lost people in this world. You know, as we're trying to separate from the stuff of this world and from the ways of this world, we've got to continue to keep in touch with the people in this world because we are God's plan to reach them. You know, if we understand these concepts and if we let them begin to truly begin to shape us, it will drastically change the way that we live And it will radically affect the impact that we have on this world around us. And that's what we want, isn't it? That's what we want. We want to live more than just a pleasant life. We we want more than, than just getting through. We want to live lives that not only please God, but we want to live lives that will matter for all of eternity. Well, let's take a look at our passage for this morning. Luke chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 27. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Will you do this when you find that? Will you stand? We'll stand for the reading of God's word. All read. You follow along. Luke 5, beginning in verse 27. Luke writes, After this... Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, it will spill, and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put in fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new. Because, he says, the old is better. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning for you to be our teacher. For you to speak to us each individually, personally, specifically. God, that your word would be applied by your spirit to our hearts and that you would do a work within us not only of increasing our understanding, but Lord, of changing us, transforming us. Lord, we depend on that. We need that. Meet us here in this time, Lord and work powerfully amongst us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Consider for a minute who it is that Jesus has been calling to come and to follow him. And consider for a moment that we've read a couple of times now... That there are religious leaders, spiritual leaders from all over the land who have, who have begun to come and to, to hear what it is that Jesus has to say. That the, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the scribes from all over Galilee, even from a far, as far away as Jerusalem, have come to hear Jesus, to hear what it is that he has to say. But did you notice something? Jesus isn't calling them. To come follow him. Oh no, he's chosen instead to call some uneducated fishermen to come and to follow him. And now, now we see here in this passage, he calls even a traitor. A tax collector to come and follow him to be his disciple. Look there, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. Understand this. Tax collectors were the most despised people of all. Not much has changed, huh? <laughs> The more things are different, the more they stay the same. You see, you got to understand what a tax collector was. They were a Jew who worked for the occupying pagan Roman government. They had the force of the Roman army behind them to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. And not only did they collect taxes in order to help fund the army that occupied their own land... But they also grew rich by collecting extra for themselves. It's easy to understand why everyone hated them. Tax collectors were universally despised, so much so that they were not allowed to come to worship at the local synagogues. So much so that if there was a Jewish trial in one of the Jewish courts, a tax collector was not considered an acceptable witness, they weren't allowed to testify they were so hated so loathed so detested that any self-respecting person would have absolutely nothing to do with them except that is for Jesus aren't you glad for that aren't you glad that that Jesus loves outcasts cuz not only not only did he call uneducated fishermen and lousy tax collectors to come and follow him. He called you and me. Oh, man, we can be so thankful that the Lord was willing to look at Peter and Andrew, at James and John out in their boats, to call them to come follow him, to look at Levi there in his tax booth, to say, come and follow me. Because he said that to us as well. You know, it's probably a good antidote to our pride to remember that God did not choose us because of our awesomeness. I mean, you're pretty awesome, I'll give you that. But that isn't why God chose you. Uh, Paul puts it a little more bluntly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there in verses 26 through 29. Listen to what Paul says about you. <laughs> you're reading ahead. <laughs> God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. That's good to remember, isn't it? It's good for us to remember that God chose us not because of who we are but despite who we are. It's his goodness. It was his mercy, his grace that allowed me to be chosen, that allowed you to be chosen by God. You know, it's not only good for us to remember that, but it's good for those who don't yet know the Lord to understand this dynamic. Here's why. The unsaved person needs to know that it's okay that they're not good enough. You know, a lot of people, you share the gospel with them, and they think, I don't deserve forgiveness. Oh, I've got to get my life cleaned up before I come to Jesus. Really? Really? Do you wash your shirts before you take them to the dry cleaner? I don't. I wipe my nose with them on the way in the door. You know, it's like, hey, here you go. No, no, no you, don't, you don't get cleaned up before you come to the Lord. We go to the Lord because we're a mess. And Jesus, Jesus chooses us anyway. Jesus invites Levi. And Levi responds. He responds. Look at verse 28. So leaving everything behind, he got up and he began to follow him. Dear friends, dear friends, that is what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. When you come to Jesus, when you realize what it is that he's done for you, It moves you to put everything else to the side. To put Jesus first. And it's not because it's a requirement. It's not because you are purchasing your salvation. It's not that you have to. It's that you just have to. It's that everything within you desires to put him first. It's that everything else Pales in comparison. Everything else becomes secondary. And whatever it takes to follow, you're ready. You're all in. That, that's where Levi was. Oh, you remember Peter and Andrew and James and John? Oh, when Jesus called them and they were out in their boats fishing and they, they walked away from all of it. They walked away from all of it to follow Jesus. And so too Levi, he does the same thing. He walks away from everything in order to follow Jesus. Levi began a new life that day. He began a new life. Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter five. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, okay, so this is a broad statement. It applies not just to Peter and Andrew and James and John, not just to Levi, to you and to me. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Oh, that's good news. That is very good news. Understand what, what Paul is saying here. He says that when we come to Christ, whatever was before, different that was before. That was before. And it doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter who you were. It doesn't matter what you've done. What matters now is Christ and that you have come to him and that he has made you a new creature. He has given you a new life, a new start. And so, having come to Christ, you no longer live the life that you used to live. But now, though you may work at the same place, you may live at the same address, you've got a new life in those places because you have a new purpose. And you, you yourself, have a new identity Levi was a new man. And as a new man, Levi wanted his old friends to meet the one who had transformed him. Look at verse 29. Levi hosted a grand banquet for Jesus, for Jesus. Levi wasn't just throwing a party to throw a party. Levi was throwing a party, a grand banquet for Jesus at his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with him. (laughs) But the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. They were complaining to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Understand this. Levi is simply trying to introduce his friends to Jesus. He isn't continuing in his old ways. He had left all that behind. He wasn't just seeking to to find his identity, his purpose in the old things, in the old ways. No, his identity now was found in following Christ. Levi is there, not as Levi. Levi is there. He is hosting this party as an ambassador, as an ambassador for the king. He is there in order to point others to Christ. (laughs) But the religious leaders, they don't like it. They don't like it one bit. They don't like the way it looks. They don't like the way it smells. And so they are grumbling, they are griping, they are complaining. It's interesting, this word in the, in the Greek language in which this passage was written in, it's the same word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where it talks about the children of Israel grumbling against God as they wandered in the wilderness. They were griping, they were complaining, they were cantankerous, they were just cranky. They were expressing their disapproval, not only of Levi, not only of Jesus' disciples, but of Jesus himself, because they were coming into contact with people who were not righteous. Let me be crystal clear here. The issue here was not the behavior of Levi or the disciples, or of Jesus. It was the association. It was the association. It isn't that the disciples were doing anything that was wrong. It's that they were in the company of sinners. You see, the religious leaders, they saw sinners as a problem to avoid, as a mess to be kept away from. And you know, I think sometimes we fall into that same trap. We have a hard time dissecting that difference between people who are lost and the world that is lost. We have a hard time just navigating that that difference between reaching out to people who are lost without involving ourselves in the lostness of this world. I think sometimes we forget that we are supposed to be spiritual paramedics. We're supposed to be those who tend the wounds of those who are lost, who bring them to the great physician. You know, paramedics, paramedics don't fix people. They transport people. They bring them to, to the one who can bring healing to them. And, you know, we can't fix any of these broken people in this world, but we can bring them to Jesus. That's our task. That's the job that we're supposed to be doing. But but instead of doing that, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were just trying to keep as far away as they could from these people. In the end, the Lord might say the same thing to them, and maybe even to us, that he said to the priests of Ezekiel's day. Do you remember that? Ezekiel chapter 34, there God speaks to the priests and he says, you have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. God basically says to the priests of Ezekiel's day, you have been only interested in yourself. Your whole focus has been on yourself and on being comfortable and getting what you want. When you, what you were supposed to be about was healing wounds and helping those who are broken. Listen to how Jesus answers the religious leaders' complaint. Verse 31 Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We need to see the lost world around us not just as a source of contamination. We do have to be careful, don't we? We do need to make sure that we don't get sucked back into the life that that once was our native land. And yet, we've got to see those who are perishing there as the sick and the wounded, their very lives ebbing away. We've got to see them as those who are in need of the physician, that they are sinners in need of a Savior. That's why Jesus welcomed sinners. He calls them to repentance, He offers them salvation. And those who, who turn from their sin and come to Him, He accepts them, He saves them, He sanctifies them. That's why He came. He came to rescue sinners. First uh, Timothy, chapter 1, there Paul explains to Timothy, he says, this is a, trustworthy and deser- uh, a saying that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I, Paul says, huh, I am the worst of them. What humility Paul spoke with. What clarity as he sees the mission of the Savior and seeks to emulate it. Jesus came to save sinners to reach the lost. By the way, when it says that he came to save sinners, that's all of us. That's all of us. That's tax collectors and it's religious leaders. It's every one of us because every one of us Have fallen short of the glory of God. Every last one of us is a sinner in need of the Savior. Notice something here. Notice who's happy, who's joyful, and who's not. The religious leaders, (laughs) they're grumbling. And, And I know from experience, no one is joyful while they're grumbling. Right? You know, in fact, nothing is more irritating when you're grumbling than a joyful person. (laughs) When you are in a cantankerous place and some joyful jerk, I mean, person, comes along and they're just spilling their joy all over the place, you just want to slap them. (laughs) That's where the religious leaders are at. They are grumbling. Oh, but the tax collectors, the sinners, oh, and the disciples in Jesus, they're fully enjoying a wonderful feast. <laughs> Religious leaders, I think they see that and they don't like that either. Verse 33, then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers. And those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken from them. Then they will fast in those days. Think about that for a moment. First of all, the religious leaders are starting from a false premise. They're saying, they're claiming that Jesus and his disciples, that they don't ever fast or pray. Well, but they do. We've read about it. We've read the accounts. Hey, Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And in Matthew 6, 16, Jesus tells his disciples, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, religious leaders. You know, when Jesus says, whenever you fast, that assumes something, doesn't it? It insinuates something it means That his disciples did fast. But Jesus tells them, listen, when you fast, don't make a show out of it. Others don't need to know. They fasted. They prayed. That wasn't the issue here. You see, the real problem is that the religious leaders were perpetually cranky. They were perpetually cranky. And here's what I think. I think that they were cranky because they were trying really, really hard to earn their salvation. They were serious about this. They wanted to be right. They wanted to be right with God and they were trying their hardest to do it. But they knew they were failing. Isn't that the thing that makes you cranky faster than anything else? When you are honestly giving your best effort to something that you care about deeply and you are failing miserably. There's not much that's more disheartening than that. Oh man, the, the religious leaders, they, they were trying to follow all their rules. They were trying to live lives that were righteous, but they were failing. And so they were they were cranky. And when you're cranky, you can't stand to see anyone have a good time oh but there were jesus and his disciples full of joy enjoying life you know the christian life it's a joyful life that's one reason reason that jesus kept comparing it to a wedding fe- feast you see, a wedding feast in that day, that was the single most joyful, fun-filled, happy event of a person's life. And that's why Jesus chose to compare the Christian life to it. Now, obviously, it's not the circumstances of the Christian that make their life joyful. Our circumstances are not always great, are they? Now, Jesus himself said that wouldn't be the case. In John 16, 33, what did Jesus say? In this life, you will have suffering. You will have suffering. It's not our circumstances that will give us joy. Our lives will not be pain-free once we begin to follow Christ. Our joy won't come from our circumstances. Here's where it comes from. Galatians 5, verse 22. Listen to what God's word says. God himself will give us joy. It says there that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, onward. Think about that. The fruit of the Spirit. The result of living life in the Spirit. The end result of living a life that is submitted to God, submitted to His Spirit. What's going to come from that is love and joy. And peace. Man, when we are submitted to the Lord, we know his love for us, don't we? Our hearts cry out to him, Abba God. In other words, Daddy, Father God. And his spirit responds back to us. and We know his love. And when we are living our lives in submission to the spirit of God, we experience peace peace of knowing that we are right with God and that our salvation our eternity is secure it's secure because of the work that Christ did on our behalf upon the cross and we know joy we know joy even in the midst of this life and its many issues its many problems we know joy because we're not living for the now we're living for eternity and we know that whatever we have to slog through in this life, then an eternity is coming where things will be set right and our joy will be full. It'll be complete. <laughs> the religious leaders took kind of a different view. They seemed to think that if you weren't really miserable, then you weren't really trying. You know, that if you were really trying to live a good life, you would be able to tell because you would be pretty stinking miserable all the time. Uh, one great example of this was just kind of the, the way they approached fasting. Um, they just decided that you should fast twice a week just to kind of keep you cranky, I think. Uh, that, that you just needed to do it not for a specific reason, not... Not in order to achieve a result, but in order to check off your box that you had fasted twice that week. They, and so they, they tended to live with this stultifying somberness. Just kind of this, this continual crankiness that made the joy and the peace of Jesus and his disciples just that more irritating. I don't think they could even fathom what Jesus meant when he said in John 10.10 10, that I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance. God is saying, man, I've come so that your life can be a life that is, is marked by love and peace and joy, that it is a good, good thing. You know, you can't buy that. You can't buy love. You can't buy joy. You can't buy peace. But if you come to Jesus, if you submit yourself to him, he gives you these things freely. Look at verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, Not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It'll spill and the skin will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh (laughs) wineskins. But here's the problem. No one, after drinking old wine, wants new. Because he says the old is better. I'm used to this. This is, this is what I know. The religious leaders, they thought they knew the only way to become holy. That What was necessary was for them to follow every rule that they'd ever thought up, for them to try really, really hard and, and to be, well, fairly miserable all along the way. And that that was the way. They didn't want this new wine that Jesus was offering. They didn't want this way of grace. You see, Jesus' approach to to righteousness, it is is completely different from that of the Pharisees. The, The Pharisees depended on outward pressure. They made rules for everything. They would build a fence around you in order to keep you in the place that they wanted to keep you. Jesus took a different approach. Instead of outward pressure on behavior, Jesus brought inner transformation and a changed heart. Instead of keeping you home by building a fence around you, he keeps you home by loving you, by changing your heart for him, and by changing that that desire to wander into a desire to, to stay close that's a huge, huge difference. You know, it's what God promised that he would do. Again, clear back to the time of Ezekiel. Remember Ezekiel chapter 36, there in verses 26 and 27. Here's what God promises he is going to do. This is what Jesus is doing. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. The religious leaders were building fences. They were creating outward pressure to change behavior and Jesus says, I'm going to change your heart so that you won't need fences. Oh, you'll stay home because that's where your father is. That's where you'll want to be because you want to be close to the Lord. The religious leaders were trying to earn God's approval. They were trying to earn not only their salvation, but that purifying work of sanctification that God does within us. But they couldn't. They couldn't. They they would always fall short. The good news is we don't have to earn. We don't have to earn God's approval. We don't have to earn our salvation. Christ paid for it all upon the cross. He died in our place as a payment for our sin. Nor do we have to earn our sanctification. It won't be achieved by, by our gutting it out and, and, and building rules and fences around our lives but rather by God changing our heart and putting a new desire within us to serve him and to love him with all that we are. Jesus loved outcasts. It's good news for us, isn't it? He called fishermen, tax collectors, even you and I, to follow him. He welcomes us, sinners that we are, He offers us salvation. He calls us to repentance and he cleanses us. He gives us a new heart and he puts his spirit within us that our lives would be transformed so that we can can be changed from the inside out and that God can use us now to go out into the world and to share with others about the one who has changed us. Are you longing to have a life of impact? Do you want to have a life that will matter for all of eternity? You know, nothing that we can build here in this earth will, will get us that. Nothing that we can achieve in this life will get us that. But you know what will? Allowing the Lord to have his way with us that lives would be changed allowing the Lord to transform our hearts and and, and to change our heart of rebellion for a heart of love for the Savior allowing His Spirit to rule over our lives so that we will draw close to Him and He will then fill us with His love and His joy and His peace and people won't be able but help to notice. You ever sitting at a stoplight and have a big truck with LED headlights pull up behind you? It's a great time to check for broken ribs. Just look at the light as it shines through your chest. Look for little cracks in the bones. It's a great opportunity. You can't help but to miss these guys, right? First of all, their headlights are... You know, way up there, so it's just shining right in your back window, and, and there's such intensity there. I mean, the a blind guy would notice. You know, if we will allow the Lord to fill us up with His love and His joy and His peace, we will become as bright, or even brighter. Oh, and there's going to be some people who are going to be irritated by that brightness. They won't respond positively. But let me tell you, when we are shedding His light abroad, it's a good thing. Because we'll be allowing people who are broken and whose lives are ebbing away to come to know the Savior who has saved us and who has changed us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would draw close to you, we would be transformed by you. God, I pray that our lives would be lives that matter for all eternity. God, that the way that we live would impact our community. The God, that being surrendered to you, being filled up with your Spirit, we would become beacons of hope, beacons of truth, pointing to you that this place, this place that you have planted us would be different because you are working through us here. Draw us to yourself, Lord. Change our hearts and use us. We pray it in Jesus' name.